I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Podcast Book Club is going to start as soon as I get the first book, which will be a biography of Boudicca, or Boudicca, whichever you prefer. And so if that's something that you are into or you dig, go to Instagram and look up Cauldron Podcast, and we are basically going to read a chapter a week, and then I'm going to do a Facebook or an Instagram live video And we're going to have kind of an open discussion as we go through the book and just talk it out. Um, So, again, if you're interested in that, go to Instagram and search Cauldron Podcast. Or reading, I will put a link to Amazon or whatever in the uh, show notes. So you'll be able to just go there and pick up the book and start reading and following along with us. The last episode we covered was the Battle of Iwo Jima. And there was a ton of really good feedback and a lot of just general interest. So if you want to kind of dive in a little bit more into the story of Iwo Jima, I really cannot encourage you more to head over to YouTube and look up the video Memories of Iwo Jima. It's put out by, um, I want to say it's put out by the VA or a, um, a, a Marine Veterans Affiliated Group. And it's basically just interviews with current uh, surviving veterans, and they talk about their experiences while it's interplayed with uh, kind of one-on-one interviews with them and then actual battlefield footage. And it is really, really powerful stuff. I, it might be the best Iwo Jima-related video on the Internet. If you don't get choked up watching this video, then you are a uh, a far colder, you know, colder person than I am because uh, the just the the voice that or the voices of these men as they kind of talk about their experience and and the the men and friends that they left on that island. It's just it's powerful, powerful stuff. So again, that's memories of Iwo Jima, and it's on the Facebook page. I have a link up there. But you can also just go to YouTube and check it out there. Please go to iTunes or your Apple Podcast apps or whatever you're listening to uh, this episode now on. And go ahead and scroll down or go wherever you can. Rate, review, and subscribe. Again, it really does help to get us heard by more people and higher up on the history list. So if you could do that, that would be great. If you have a second more, really please try and get a review on there. Each time someone writes a review moving forward, I am, I'm going to give them a shout-out credit as a producer on the show. That's how important these, uh, these reviews are to me. So uh, it can't hurt you. It takes a couple of seconds, and it can only help the show get better and better. So uh, thank you for doing that. Thank you for listening. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get stuck in, and let's head to North Africa some 2,065 years ago. It's a time of turmoil and war, a time of sandals and swords, a time of Caesar. Rubicon River was not the only body of water that Caesar would find himself crossing in his fight to protect his octoritas, which uh, kind of translates uh, to dignity, honor, and his sense of, of position and power within Rome. 
It was, however, the first body of water that he would cross. From the river crossing to the fields of Pharsalus, Caesar time and again showed Pompey Magnus, or Pompey the Great, that speed and determination often trump patience and numbers on the battlefield. Pompey's comrades, who were the self-styled Boni, or Boni, which translates roughly to the good men, proved to be little more than a hindrance to the once great general, and at Pharsalus, the Pompeian forces were completely crushed. And it was a, it was basically a total rout. Like any good Roman, though, Pompey, uh, Pompey Magnus refused to surrender after his defeat, and instead he fled the field, basically going to his nearest allied area, hoping to build another army and continue the fight. And so he headed to Egypt, where he thought he would get the warmest welcome. Once he was in Alexandria, Pompey was summarily executed. He was decapitated on the beach after getting right off the boat. And this was in full view of his family, his entourage, his freedmen, his slaves. It was not exactly the welcome the great man was probably looking for. Caesar crossed the Mediterranean unaware at first that his recent enemy, but a man who was his former friend and son-in-law, uh, Pompey was already dead, but once he was given the gruesome, bar- and, uh, the, the gruesome news and was told exactly how Pompey was executed, it's pretty unlikely that Caesar would have done anything other than what he did do, which was to head straight for the Ptolemy's capital city of Alexandria. Sifting through the incestuous court of the Ptolemies was a messy, confusing, and fairly deadly uh, task that Caesar had set himself. But he eventually decided to back the young, beautiful Cleopatra. And this is the same Cleopatra of Shakespeare and fame throughout history. So Caesar decides to back her and Alexandria almost instantly becomes a, 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 a nasty little war zone. For months, Caesar is besieged in the palace in Alexandria, but he's eventually able to use his forces to defeat Cleopatra's little brother-slash-husband, and he installs her successfully as queen of Egypt. And in this process, he establishes basically himself in the name of Rome as the uh, essentially the ruler of Egypt through Cleopatra. I believe it's at this point that he gives Egypt ally status. I don't think it's until Augustus that it becomes a province. But anyhow, Egypt is, for all intents and purposes, under the rule of Rome at this point. Uh, Caesar also takes his new... Uh, paramour, I guess you'd call her, on this really famous long trip up and down the Nile in her royal yacht. Uh, He falls in love with her, or whatever it is that passes for love with Caesar, and in all likelihood he seems to have genuinely loved her, um, or cared for her, and even fathered, most likely or, or seemingly, he fathered a son named Caesarian on her. Uh, After a while, Caesar's long absence from Rome was beginning to be felt back in the capital city. The famous senator Cicero even goes so far to mention Caesar's lack of letter writing as a sign that maybe Caesar was enjoying the young queen a little too much. And in that process, maybe he was neglecting his duties. Anyhow... Caesar's batteries were essentially charged, and he was fully re-energized to go about finishing this civil war that he might not have essentially started, but he was certainly responsible for. So, in order to do that, Caesar needed to go to Rome. First, though, he had to deal with a little uprising by the king of Pontus. He goes up there, takes care of that, and with his patented speed and efficiency, Caesar then made his way to a troubled Rome. Rome 
had been left in the less than capable and often wine-soaked hands of Caesar's most famous or infamous, depending on who you're talking to, subordinate. That would be the legendary Mark Antony. While the master was away, the children made mischief, and everywhere Caesar looked, Rome was in complete disarray. Bribery and street violence was back in force and had been basically allowed to run wild by Mark Antony, who no doubt did very well in both of these activities. It's at this moment that we get one of the clearest examples of why Caesar was one of history's great leaders and generals. So Caesar's decisiveness and his his deep understanding of the psychology of his men teamed up with his complete fearlessness and and self-assuredness and a very wily cunning that could win battles bloodlessly and and basically he put himself in positions where he could win before his opponents even knew that they were in the middle of the battle. So four of Caesar's uh, veteran legions were left behind by him as he went to chase Pompey and these were left as as kind of a defensive force so they were there to protect Rome from being reconquered by uh, a stray Pompeian legion, but they were also there to work as kind of a public order force, a large police force, trying to keep Rome as close to running a normal day-to-day existence as possible. But these very legions that Caesar had left, believing that they were his veteran legions and therefore very secure in in kind of letting them do their own thing, uh, they ended up adding to the general chaos in Rome. These men had been, in many cases, through 15 years of campaigns throughout Gaul and into the Civil War. And they had been through combat, and, and though they were very loyal to Caesar, they had kind of gone to seed under Antony. Discipline was down, they were bored, and with most soldiers, they, they, need, they need something to kind of keep them busy or occupied. Otherwise, they start to think about how much, uh, how much they're owed and, and how wronged they've been. So that's what's happening to these four veteran legions. They've been given a lot of time to sit around and think about the, uh, the amount of money that they are not getting. They So these four veteran legions, they demanded to be paid, discharged, and then given their promised rewards of money and land. And this, this land dole would be the constant craving of every legionary for a long time, until Augustus outlawed the practice of land grants for military service. I think he eventually just did away with the whole process. But anyhow, so one of these legions that was involved in this mutiny is even Caesar's personal favorite, and maybe the bravest, fiercest legion in Roman history. That's the indomitable 10th legion, which if you go back and do any readings, and I'm sure at some point we will cover them actually fighting in a battle, but the 10th has uh, just a great, great history of its own. So word got to Caesar that his four legions were making demands and clamoring for discharge, so Caesar set out to clear things up. Caesar's advisors and friends warned him that the danger and threat of the uh, the violence that the mutineers were putting out there should be taken very seriously. Uh, they were afraid that these men were going to, to cut down anybody that went to them to negotiate, and they even advised Caesar that he should probably just meet the demands and, and be done with the whole affair. That's not how Caesar worked. This is a man who was incredibly uh, self-possessed. He had just an un... Uh, an unbelievable amount of faith in himself and his his um, felicitas, or I think I'm saying that right, but essentially his luck and his sense of destiny. He had no, absolutely no doubt that he was going to be able to convince these men that they needed to do what their general demanded. 
So Caesar saw the uh, he saw the greater picture. He knew there was there was still a, a pocket of Pompeian forces in North Africa, and that there was some issues in Hispania that needed to be dealt with, and that these four veteran legions would be essential, uh, you know, pivotal in in his overall victory. So Caesar knew he had to get them to fight for him. He also knew that to pay the, these men off and to tax the population further to do so was just going to destabilize Rome even further at a time when he needed to be elsewhere. So he wasn't going to be able to uh, hang around much longer in Rome to deal with the blowback of, of further taxation. So without any entourage or, or any bodyguards, Caesar walks straight into the mutinous camp, and he walks all the way alone to the center dais, uh, which is traditionally where the gener- general or the officers commanding of that day would, would give direction and orders from this dais, and, and any kind of meeting of the minds or whatever would happen around this. So Caesar calmly, he even quietly begins addressing the soldiers, promising them he'd pay them with the spoils of his victory. So once he has the money, don't worry, he'll pay them. That uh, once he had won, finally, they would be getting their land distribution for each and every one of them. They'd get a parcel of, of good Italian soil. And this was all very standard Roman general fare. But uh, it, it was all designed to gain loyalty and if, to the person of that general, not necessarily to Rome, but to that particular general himself. And it had been working for about yeah, 60, 60 years at this point. I mean, you really start to see it with uh, Gaius Marius, and, and then you see it with uh, uh, Sulla, and Caesar's just kind of following in the footsteps of those those great generals when he's promising the money and, and land. But uh, as he's speaking to these men, promising to get them what they're demanding eventually, uh, there's a small little difference. And, and the men closest to him, closest to this uh, dais, begin to notice as the uh, as the as Caesar, their general, is continuing he he's always in every speech beforehand every time he's he's referred to his soldiers he's called them his uh camillatones which meant essentially comrade or or fellow soldier uh combined with his his generosity and his his incredible name uh, ability to remember names Camillatones was another way of uh, of of building a bond between Caesar and his soldiers. It, it was an even better way of, of tightening that personal relationship and making his soldiers feel like Caesar cared for each and every one of them individually. So this Camillatones really means a lot to the men. But now, alone amidst this, this crowd of mutineers, Caesar began to call his men Quirites or Quirites which is simply citizen. So it's a very, very blanket kind of uh, blanket statement. He explains to the soldiers that there is no need for him to discharge them as their selfish actions had already done that. Caesar would win the war with other men. These Quirites in front of him were free to go home and await their pay. These Quirites were no longer his Camillatones, and so he needed to find men that would fight. So this seemingly simple reverse psychology, it worked wonders. And and soon these veteran soldiers, these uh, veteran men of of the wars in Gaul, were openly weeping, they were screaming, they they were demanding to be allowed to serve their general again, ripping off their armor in despair that he wouldn't take them back, and always kind of on the hunt for an edge, and wanting to kind of grind these men down even more to make them really beg to fight for him. Caesar at first... He refuses and says, no, 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 no. You want to be discharged? By all means, you're discharged. I'm okay. I can win without you. But slowly, slowly, he starts to allow these soldiers to convince him that they could fight and that they would win. 
And and this whole episode just shows you exactly how brilliant Caesar was at at kind of manipulating the the psychology of his men and instinctually or instinctively he he's able to mold the hearts and minds of his soldiers and then he's able to bend them to his very will. With Rome finally set to rights and the mutiny broken, Caesar, never one to dally, set out for the island of Sicily. His plan was to use Sicily as a staging ground for his campaign in North Africa. And obviously, Sicily is situated between the African coast and the tip of Italy's boot, and it had been used over and over and over uh, throughout history by the Greeks, the Carthaginians, the Romans, the Phoenicians, basically as a, uh, a major supply depot or staging ground for invasions all over the Mediterranean. Building up an army, uh, especially in the ancient world, takes a ton of time. And Caesar was rightfully always afraid of giving his enemy time to feel secure. If his enemy began to feel secure, then the the populace might start to be swayed in, in the direction of the Pompeians. And it, he knew that the Boni, although uh, f- very frustrating, were not dumb. And he might be, if he gave them enough time, they might be able to figure a way to entrap him or combine their forces and, and it wasn't that long ago, right before the Battle of Pharsalus at Dariacum, that Caesar was pretty much, you know, it was it was kind of a draw, but Caesar was beaten at Dariacum, and uh, the fear that that might happen again if he had to fight two or three of these Pompeian armies at once uh, was there. And so Caesar really wanted to constantly press the offensive and keep the enemy on their heels. So before his forces in Sicily are fully formed and fully outfitted and trained, he sets sail for the the coast of North Africa. And uh, along the way, Caesar's famous luck seems to have uh, maybe abandoned him on this journey because his fleet was kind of ripped asunder by uh, bad weather. And, and he's Caesar's forced to disembark with a very small portion of the six legions and 2,000 cavalry that he left Sicily with. So waiting for his other ships, Caesar runs into an issue that would dog him throughout the rest of the North African campaign. And that's the issue of supply, which, if you are to pick at Caesar as a general, his supply issues tend to kind of pop up every single campaign he's on. Now, he always figures out a way to uh, uh, get the necessary food and supplies, but there always does seem to be a little bit of an issue. And and that seems to go with a lot of these uh, offensive-minded attack, attack, attack type generals. You had the same thing with Hannibal. You eventually had the same thing with Alexander. These generals that are always on the move tend not to really secure their supply lines. I mean, in North Africa alone, you'd see this exact same problem like we talked about with El Alamein and Erwin Rommel. The the stretching of the supply line and then also not ensuring a continuous uh, a continuous supply was something that uh, a lot of these aggressive-minded generals tend to uh, suffer from. Out foraging for food, that the first real fight of the entire North African campaign occurs as Caesar's foraging party is caught in the open by a much, much larger enemy force, and this force is commanded by an old friend, now-turned-enemy, and that is Titus Labienus. Labienus was an excellent tactician, a brilliant, apparently brilliant, brilliant cavalryman, and under Caesar in Gaul, Labienus had proved to be one of his most successful, trusted, and efficient legates, and a legate is a Roman, uh, essentially, general. A, uh, a vicious and 
kind of a, a man known to have a bit of a mean streak and a tendency towards unnecessary violence. Labienus basically was alienated from Caesar, and when the civil war eventually broke out, he turned to the Pompeians, who were more than happy to win the political points of having Labienus turn from Caesar, and also they were more than happy to have an extremely skilled military commander to, uh, to kind of bolster their forces. So it's outside the city of Raspina that Labienus now had Caesar at a wild disadvantage of maybe some 10,000 to Caesar's 3,000. And, and Caesar is in a very, very tight spot. And in this heated tactical battle, Caesar over and over proved just, more, just enough more skillful um, to kind of slip out of tight positions that Labienus was putting him in. And then he was he was really, really pressed to the max by a adversary that was just almost as quick and almost as skilled as him. But uh, but he Caesar was uh, able to doggedly outmaneuver uh, Labienus, and he fought his way uh, with his force back to the port town, and so escaped a what what very likely could have been an early end to the whole North African affair. If Caesar loses here, then uh, well, first off, he might have been killed, but also he loses you know the the portion of his army here. He probably has to retreat back to Sicily. The potential for that to be turned into a major victory back in Rome is there. It becomes a much longer uh, civil war and and the overall effect would far outweigh the actual, you know, numbers of soldiers that were involved. Once back to the safety of the port city, Caesar sets his men to dig in, as only Romans could dig in. Equal part construction worker slash uh, soldier, the legionaries completed some of the most impressive feats of building in the ancient world. Often only to, uh, you know, they, they're, they're throwing up uh, walls, bridges, roads, forts, siege towers, impressive, impressive construction works. And then they're basically leaving them or tearing them down within, you know, sometimes within days, if not hours, of putting them up. Uh, eventually we'll get to it when we get to Caesar's campaigns in Gaul, but he famously bridged the Rhine just to send the, uh, the Germans a message and then turns around and walks back and takes that bridge right down, which is just one of my favorite stories, and, and we'll get there at some point. Soon after the run-in with Labienus, uh, Raspina's port was connected to the city itself, the city proper, by a, a protection um, series of walls and palisades. And on the other side of that, Caesar is ramping up the buildup of his army. He's still collecting you know, ships that were waylaid by weather. They're still pulling into this area, and, and Caesar's pulling all of his army together. And meanwhile, he's also got workshops and armories and, and training facilities going on. And the walls and the palisades were, were needed because the army of Labienus and uh, Labienus's co-general, a medalist Scipio, the, uh, who, who was the other Pompeian general, which and also Scipio was more of a name than he was actually a talent. This, this army was large and it was waiting for a fight. The Scipio uh, Labienus army was made up of 14 legions. That's 10 Roman and four allied legions, all equipped and supplied, uh, if not very seasoned. There was a lot of, of new recruits, fresh faces to the legions in the Pompeian army. There was also a very large, uh, a sizable contingent of cavalry. And remember, Labienus is a brilliant cavalryman, so this large force, uh, maybe as many as 10,000, uh, eight to 10,000 would have been a well-used weapon in the hands of a man like Labienus. And there was also excellent Numidian light cavalry, which is famous throughout history for being incredibly effective on the ancient battlefield. 
And this uh, Numidian cavalry comes from Juba of Numidia, who was an ally to the Pompeian forces, and he had promised to bring a large army, somewhere around 30,000 men. Uh, But an invasion of his own kingdom forced uh, Juba to split his force and to send the large portion of it to return and settle the issue at home. He did, however, have uh, 60 elephants, and he left, or 75, anywhere from 60 to 75 elephants, and he left 30 of these elephants in the hands of Scipio and Labienus. So these elephants would become a constant topic of conversation and worry in Caesar's camp. And to deal with the the kind of tension and stress and uh, the questioning because of the unknown factor of the elephants, Caesar did something that is, again, a brilliant symbol of, of just the kind of mind that you're dealing with. He, it's a simple solution, but it's, it's incredibly effective. He sends back to Rome and has a bunch of elephants shipped in from the, the gaming pits. And then he has, uh, Caesar has his men train with these animals so that they get used to being around them. They're, they're desensitized to them. Uh, they, can, they know and can recognize weaknesses and tendencies that might come in handy on the battlefield. And again, he's, he's allowing his men to feel more comfortable with something that was an unknown factor to them at first. And it just goes to show he's also he's prepping his uh, slingers and archers so that they can see where the weakness in the armor and the equipment on the elephants are. He's also training his infantry to uh, be prepared to be able to uh, make essentially aisles within their their formations so that the elephants can be kind of allowed to pass through harmlessly. Um, And also just having them in the camp, he's allowing the uh, the Roman cavalry or his cavalry units to become more and more uh, desensitized as well. These horses are uh, beginning to become used to the smell of the elephants, the noises of the elephants, and that way when it comes to the actual battle, they really won't be as shocked or surprised by the animals. And so this this whole concept of, of bringing in elephants is, is really uh, a brilliant stroke of... of um, simplicity, but also genius at the same time. All the while, uh, the training and the equipping of his army was going well, and the rest of Caesar's men continued to flow into the protected port area. But the more that uh, showed up from the island of Sicily, and the longer his army remained penned in, the more and more food became a problem. By the time Caesar knew he had to move or die, his men were eating seaweed rinsed off with fresh water. Caesar realized that his position, though defensible, was not strong or well-supplied enough to outlast a continual siege. Caesar's talents as a general, like I was saying, he's an aggressive-minded general, so his talents are really uh, really used best on the offensive. And the experience of his veterans was being wasted behind fortifications, they really were better used on the battlefield confronting an enemy and, and doing what they do best, which is slashing, stabbing, and, and cutting an enemy infantry force to pieces. So Caesar decides to make a move, and hopefully he's, he's going to get the, the army of uh, Scipio and Lebianus to actually commit to battle. After uh, the Pompeian forces continuously are outside of the city and they're offering up uh, ba- you know, battle formation as bait to Caesar, and he continuously refuses it. The, the ground isn't right. He doesn't want to put himself in a position where he can't, uh, he can't win. So Caesar at one point slips out of the fort with his army and begins to march south in search of food and, uh, and good terrain for, for a battle. 
days and days of marching and countermarching go by as Caesar, he's moving from small city to the next small city, taking food, taking supplies, and, and wherever he could and, and wherever he thought he might have a successful outcome, he's putting his men in battle formation, offering, uh, offering to the enemy to fight wherever he thinks the terrain is right. Now, this is, this is a tricky thing for any general, but particularly in the ancient world where entire battles could be decided by just one little tiny small terrain feature. A good general had to pick ground that was uh, that essentially provided his side with advantages, but the advantages couldn't be too obvious or too overwhelming, or else the enemy just wouldn't choose to fight. They wouldn't go through with the battle. Uh, the most celebrated of generals, like Caesar, could choose ground that seemed to work in the enemy's favor and so made them feel comfortable. And, and they were so tricky that uh, once the enemy general realized the ground wasn't good, that the enemy actually had the advantage, the battle was already over and uh, that the losing general was uh, being, you know, his army was already being broken by the likes of a Caesar or an Alexander. So Caesar wanted to find ground that would negate the Pompeian strength in cavalry. Again, they've got somewhere around eight to 10,000, maybe more. And he also wanted to keep the battlefront tight, which would give his veteran heavy infantry the best possible chance of, of just mowing down an enemy infantry force without being outflanked. So uh, after taking the towns of, uh, of Sarsurs, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Sarsura, Agar, and Tiga, and I might have the order in that mixed up or the pronunciation, I apologize. But anyhow, he, uh, Caesar takes these cities and continuously is trying to goad Scipio and Labienus into a fight. But he's, uh, he's stood up at the dance floor each time by the Pompeian army. At one point, it's even reported that the two sides drew up into a battle formations and stood facing each other for for hours and hours and hours. Now, again, we're in the we're talking about uh, the spring in North Africa. It's we're talking heat and dust and sweat. I, I can't even imagine what it would take to uh, to get yourself into that mind frame. You know, think this happened again and again where these men were lining up. And it must have been exhausting just physically to get yourself all strapped in and ready to go. And then just think of the mental, the nerve-wracking nature of this as each time you had to physically prep, but then you had to ready yourself mentally and emotionally for the violence and the chaos and, and the horrors and exhausted, exhausting, vicious hand-to-hand -hand fighting that would at any time, you know, potentially mean that you're losing an arm or a leg or you're being disemboweled. It, the idea that men were able to do this every day, day in, day out for hours on end is, I mean, those are some serious mental gymnastics that just, I cannot, I cannot fathom. Um, anyhow, so Caesar realized the Pompeians were practicing, oddly enough, a, a Fabian strategy, which is essentially they were denying him battle and a, a decisive final clash while allowing time and supply issues to take a toll on his army and do their dirty work, which is what we saw when Hannibal was in Italy, the only real successful general fighting Hannibal until uh, uh, Scipio Africanus was uh, um, uh, the uh, Fabius... Fabius uh, Fabius Maximus or Fabius, I forget. But anyhow, he creates the Fabian uh, strategy and it essentially allows time and distance to do the dirty work instead of fighting a superior general. Ironically, Caesar finds himself in the Hannibal type situation as he is completely desperate for a fight. He just wants to get grips on his enemy, get hand to hand with him. And he ends up just finding himself marching around aimlessly taking small town after small town, and it's only every time he does this, it only serves to weaken his position. So the Pompeians may even have thought that 
that they had Caesar on the on the edge. They, you know, it, it wouldn't be surprising to think if I'm Scipio or Lebianus, maybe not Lebianus, but definitely Scipio, I'm starting to think, oh, we've got him on the ropes here. Uh, maybe we'll even start to see some of Caesar's men deserting to our side. But that was, uh, was not likely to happen. Had Scipio or Labianus truly understood Caesar's uh, relationship and his understanding of his men, they they really likely would have known the complete impossibility of uh, any deserters coming to them from Caesar's side. To highlight the total devotion uh, to Caesar, the man himself, there is an excellent story about a group of his men that ended up in Scipio's camp. One of the uh, errant ships carrying men from Caesar's 14th Legion landed in territory that was held by Scipio's army. The legionaries of the 14th were taken in front of the Pompeian general, and Scipio told them basically if they wanted to live, all they had to do was join him and denounce their guilt-stained commander. The unnamed centurion leader of the 14th is supposed to have responded, quote, should I take a stand against my imperatorum meum? I don't call you my imperatorum. End quote. The term imperatorum meum, which again I'm probably butchering, essentially means commander in chief, but it's a much more heightened version. It's a much more um, essentially like a, uh, it's like commander in chief on steroids. It's as if the state the religion, the general, and the soldier's honor are all kind of wrapped into one term and blended into this. So this term was never used lightly. And in this case, uh, it was the unfortunate men of the 14th who would find out how how important this term was. And it was something that they were clearly willing to die for as the, the source that relates the story tells that uh, Scipio had the centurion killed and the other veterans tortured while basically taking all of the fresh recruits from this group of the 14th and folding them into his own legions. With neither the Pompeians nor the Caesarians showing any sign of breaking or deserting en masse, the cat and mouse game just continued. Always moving to find more food, Caesar's army was regularly being snubbed by Libyanus and Scipio. Even, even when Caesar invested the city of Uzita, the Pompeians did nothing. And so Caesar was just, he was kind of at his wit's end. He's, every time he goes and attacks what he thinks is an important city or an uh, important supply depot or, or port, the Pompeians just kind of... Give him, you know, give him the talk to the hand symbol and, and don't engage. So he's desperate at this point to find the right screw to twist. And with time running out, Caesar moved on to the town of Thapsus. Thapsus was uh, near modern day Bacalta in Tunisia. And it was an easily defended little port city sitting on a peninsula. Nearby on the landward side, there was a salt lake and Thapsus was also fairly close to the island of Lamp Lampedusa, or Lampedusa. And on April 4th, Caesar lays siege to the city, knowing that this is an important city. Scipio has been using this as a, uh, a supply depot, and it's given him access to the sea. And also, it inside the city of Thapsus itself, Scipio has a fairly moderately sized contingent of, of soldiers and subordinates. So he's going to have to fight for Thapsus. The blockade or the siege of Thapsus absolutely has the desired effect, and it brings the Pompeian army out for a fight. Now, Caesar didn't necessarily pick Thapsus as the battlefield, but again, we see Caesar's brilliance here because although maybe not picking that particular city as the, the place where he would fight, 
he is able to use the existing terrain very, very intelligently. And it basically puts the onus of uh, how the direction of the battle is going to go in the hands of Scipio and Lebianus, but they don't know how to outwit the position that Caesar has taken. So you have uh, Caesar uses the salt lake on his left flank to anchor that side and the port on his right to anchor his right flank, basically keeping the large force of cavalry that Labienus and the Pompeian forces has uh, basically in a position where they are going to have to fight their way through. If they want to outflank Caesar, they're going to have to fight through his cavalry, which their sheer sheer numbers very well might allow for, but Caesar's banking on the idea that before they can get their way through, his infantry will have already won the day. Now, this would keep the... uh, numerically superior Pompeian cavalry in check and keep them from sweeping his flanks. But he was also facing a very large force of infantry. Scipio had formed his infantry into a uh, a pretty standard battle array, which is just kind of a, a giant block of heavy infantry right in between his two cavalry wings. And this big block of infantry may be numbered between 50 and 70,000 Uh, or somewhere around 12 legions, and it's in the center of his formation. On each flank, he places a, uh, you know, um, uh, on each flank, Scipio places a massive cavalry with his best, which is the Numidian light cavalry, on the far right of his line. Slightly in front of his infantry, and on each flank, uh, Scipio places the 60 elephants, which Juba had supplemented the other 30 he had left with a, a, another 30 from his army that uh, he had brought back with him from subduing that revolution or revolt or whatever it was. And, and Juba and his force are there, and he's got somewhere around 30,000 men, but they are camped a little ways away from uh, Scipio, and and his army was positioned maybe as a reserve, or maybe he was kind of letting things play themselves out and wasn't fully committed. I'm not really sure because it's it's unclear. A number of different sources have kind of given different different accountings of where Juba is, but uh, suffice it to say. The full complement of 60 elephants, or 75 elephants, according to sources, are arrayed in front of and on either wing of the uh, Pompeian army's infantry. So Caesar, for his part, places his men in a fairly similar fashion with the bulk of his infantry in the center, and he's got a cavalry contingent on each flank. In an attempt to kind of control the flanks, Caesar also places his veteran legions on the extreme right and the extreme left of his line. And in a clever and unusual twist, Caesar also divides his veteran 5th legion into two halves and places each at the rear of his left and right blocks of infantry. This kind of uh, this essentially creates a semi-reserve fourth line that would be free to wheel around and deal with any any flanking cavalry force that might have been successful, but its main objective was really to handle the war elephants that passed th- uh, through the open infantry lines. Caesar's plan for handling these ancient tanks was to basically allow them through the lines and or try and harass them mercilessly with slings and arrows in an attempt to push them back into their own infantry. So, the lines were drawn up, the plans had been made, and now the battle just had to be fought. There is some dispute about what caused the actual start of the fighting, and some sources report that Caesar, who was an epileptic, was briefly incapacitated by a seizure. So the the kind of 
chaotic, hectic opening stages of this battle might be explained because Caesar didn't have really strong, direct control over the events like he typically would. So while he was recovering behind the lines from whatever this little outburst was, whether it was a seizure or otherwise, there seems to have been a rare case of of real confusion and maybe even outright disobedience from his veteran soldiers. Apparently a trumpeter either accidentally blew the signal for advance or maybe was uh, kind of jeered and cajoled into it by a group of of war-weary veterans who felt that the end of the Civil War was in sight, all they had to do was get the goddamn thing done, and they'd be able to go home, collect their money, collect their pension, and be over with it. Either way, the legions advanced on the right-hand side of Caesar's line and began what amounts to uh, a, an avalanche because the, the centurions all start to try and hold the men up, but they are unable to, to sl- stop or slow the momentum and without causing, you know, without completely disarraying his entire line, Caesar realizes he has to just let events go as they are going. And so he orders a full attack across his entire battle line. His plan to harass the war elephants with missiles really did work on the right-hand side of the battle line, where his infantry was preemptively advancing. And on that side, the 30 30 or so war elephants were were picked and prodded and hit with arrows and slings and whatnot to the point where they just go nuts, and they end up rampaging their way into their own infantry, stomping and stamping and, and slinging their, their, their own men out of the way and crushing and killing them, and it, it, they're, they're driven back into their own infantry, and they cause massive amounts of injury and, and, and chaos, and they open up huge gaps in that left-hand side of Scipio's line. So they're, they're basically making a mess of the Pompeian uh, left wing. On Caesar's left-hand side, however, the elephants went through his gaps in the lines and were basically deftly handled by the 5th Legion, fun- functioning in that kind of weird reserve 4th line. So the fighting was was nasty, and it was particularly violent, as one of the sources recounts that, quote, I ought not, I think, to omit to mention the gallantry of a veteran soldier of the 5th Legion. On the left wing, an elephant maddened by the pain of a wound it had received had attacked an unarmed sutler, pinned him underfoot, and then knelt upon him. And now, with his, its trunk erect and swaying and trumpeting loudly, it was crushing him to death with its weight. This was more than the soldier could bear. He could not, be conf- he could not but confront the beast, fully armed as it was. When it observed him coming towards it with weapon poised to strike, the elephant abandoned the corpse, encircled the soldier with its trunk, and lifted him up in the air. The soldier, perceiving that a dangerous crisis of this sort demanded resolute action on his part, hewed with his sword again and again at the encircling trunk with all the strength he could muster. The resulting pain caused the elephant to drop the soldier, wheel around, and with shrill trumpetings make all speed to rejoin its fellows." So as you can tell, the, the fighting with elephants was very violent, very personal, but it went very well for Caesar, uh, Caesar's 5th Legion, and they were able to kind of take care of them and get them out of the way. So eventually the superiority of the legionaries pushes the elephants back and sends them into full flight. And this actually would earn the 5th the Legion the right to wear the elephant as a symbol moving forward after the battle. So although, although the fighting on Caesar's left was heavy and seemed to be somewhat even for a little while, the right of his line was crushing the Pompeian forces. All those gaps that the elephants had created in their own infantry allowed the Caesarian army to just roll up the entire battle line. 
And it's often at the end of battles, and I know I've said this before, but it's really true. At the end of battles, it's when you end up with the majority of the death that actually occurs. And at Thapsus, this was especially true. Because once Caesar's cavalry swings around, uh, attacking on on his right-hand side and swings around and starts collapsing that enemy wing and slamming their horses into the confused and disoriented rear of Scipio's retreating men, any chance at any kind of ordered withdrawal completely evaporated. And Caesar's men once again showed a surprising lack of discipline that was maybe attributed or attributable to to just sheer bloodlust at having brought on uh, or at having been kind of run through the ringer throughout this North African campaign. Um, or it might just be that they were they were sick of, of, of fighting this war and thought that they could just kill everybody and that would end the whole damn thing. Either way, they end up going on a rampage, and as small pockets of the enemy become surrounded, Caesar's men just saw red and, and started hacking them down. Even surrendering groups who would be, like, uh, encircled were, were completely slaughtered, and at one point, a group of Caesar's own officers apparently were mistaken for enemy officers, and they were promptly cut down. Now, this mass butchery, uh, it really went against the image of, of a merciful, benevolent conqueror that Caesar had really worked hard to create. He was incredibly magnanimous and was constantly pardoning and giving mercy and, and, and allowing people to um, pass through unharmed, even though that they had taken up arms against him, because his goal was to to remain the first man in Rome, not to just become king of Rome. But anyway, it's 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 clear that he either could simply not stop the uh, the onslaught of his men, or it's possible that maybe he decided this was a a fairly well deserved um, kind of venting of the anger, and so allowed it to go on. Either way, Caesar. Uh, he won the field at Thapsus and had essentially swept almost the entire Roman Empire of his enemies. Thapsus was Caesar's. The Pompeian forces were destroyed and North Africa was almost entirely under his control. And the battle had cost him maybe as little as I saw 50 dead, although that seems incredibly unlikely. Uh, And it was probably closer to another number I saw, which was around 1,000 dead. Um, So Scipio flees the field in a very un-Roman fashion. Roman generals were supposed to either... Uh, kill themselves or fight to the death, or they were supposed to try and make an uh, ordered retreat and that way fight another day. But uh, Scipio flees, and apparently he he later commits suicide in a losing naval battle while trying to get to Hispania. Uh, Again, it's one of those things where there were a couple different sources, so it's a little unsure. Titus Labienus again survives, and this time he escapes North Africa only to also later appear in Hispania, and this time he would team up with the sons of Pompey and cause more trouble for Caesar. King Juba had seemingly not taken part in the battle again. It seems like he kind of sat the whole thing out to see what would happen, and once he saw that the battle was uh, was quickly being lost by the Pompeian forces, he slinks away from the field with his army intact. This all happens, but Juba is still at some point trapped and put in a fairly desperate situation, and he makes a combat suicide pact with one of his generals. The idea is that these two friends would would essentially fight in single combat until one of them dies, and then the other one would commit suicide with the help of a slave, ensuring that both men met their honorable ends. The Pompeian army, which was uh, incredibly thrashed by the Caesarian forces that they really heavily outnumbered, 
um, which again, the Pompeian army was somewhere in maybe between 50 and 70,000 soldiers, would go on to suffer some 10,000 dead, and the rest would be scattered, wounded, or captured. The overwhelming majority of those 10,000 dead were killed well after the battle was won and against Caesar's orders, which makes it closer to murder than battle. The elephants that were captured by Caesar would go on to Rome and would be eventually paraded around in one of his triumphs, uh, and that would be through the streets of Rome, and then they probably ended up in the gaming, gaming pits to either be killed or in some cases maybe sent to one of the zoos just to be seen by the, the populace of Rome. Thapsus would mark the last time that the war elephant would be used in any kind of semi-effective fashion against a Roman army and probably the last time that it was used in a serious attempt at causing damage to an enemy army. Uh, from here on out, the war elephant becomes more and more anachronistic and kind of uh, almost like an antique. And you don't see it being used for much more than uh, kind of a, a cargo uh, cargo carrier. But uh, at Thapsus, it really definitely marked the last time that Rome would face war elephants in, in any kind of serious fashion. So before Caesar could leave for Rome uh, and, and kind of get back to doing what he loved doing, which was governing and setting down laws and, and straightening up Rome's finances and that whole deal... There's one city left and one enemy left in North Africa, and that's the city of Utica, and the enemy is Cato the Younger. Now, Cato was implacable as an enemy of Caesar. He is famous for filibustering and just generally being a, a giant thorn in Caesar's side whenever he tried to do things the right way or the legal way, and that essentially forces him to do what he did when he crossed the Rubicon and do uh, try and get what was rightfully his. Instead of doing it legally, he had to do it illegally, and it was because of Cato. So Caesar marches on the town of Utica, planning to pardon, again, Cato, and welcome him back to Rome, because... Caesar believed that by pardoning Cato, his again, his most implacable enemy, Caesar is showing how great of a man and leader he is. But Cato was having absolutely none of that. Cato uses his sword to slice open his belly, aiming to rob Caesar of both the political capital of his pardon and also the personal victory that a pardon over a Cato would be. And so while he's dying, though, his entourage, which might have been his slave, might have been his son, again, I saw a couple of different accounts, they both come rushing into the room and they find him bleeding and he's, he's dying on the ground. And they rush a doctor in, and the doctor stitches up the wound and makes it so that he'll survive, but never to be, uh, never one to be stopped from doing what he wanted. Cato rips the stitches apart and then begins to, with his own hands, pull out his intestines. And this way, he's ensuring that his death and the end of the original Bonai or Boney would come about. And uh, it's an incredible scene, and it, there's some amazing artwork. If you go on to the Instagram or the Facebook, you'll be able to see some of that. This scene of Cato's suicide has been a favorite of some of the most incredible artists of all time. So definitely check that out. Um, so by the year's end, Caesar is back in Rome, and he's planning the final campaign in the Iberian Peninsula. And this would be an end to the war, uh, the civil war itself, and this would uh, culminate with the Battle of Munda, which we will eventually get to. And finally, Caesar would be the master of the Roman world. For a little bit, at least.
All right. That wraps up the Battle of Thapsis. Anything that I got wrong, shoot me an email or a message on Instagram or Facebook at Cauldron Podcast, and I'll make sure I fix it in the next episode. Obviously, I am not a Latin speaker, so I definitely butchered some of that, and some of this was a little confusing because of the ancient sources bopping around, so the timelines are a little wonky. Um, If I got any of that mixed up, I apologize, and obviously draw my attention to it, and I will make it right. I have loved uh, the, the... both the character and the historical figure of Caesar since reading the First Man in Rome series by Colin McCullough years ago. And I just, any chance I get to tell some of his stories and and the stories about his life, I I tend to ramble and and really go on and and dig into them. I enjoy them. I hope you do too. I I can't wait to get into Elysia and and some of his other, you know, Pharsalus, uh, the Battle of Pharsalus itself, and and really dig into some of these cool, wild, wild battles of, of Caesar. Um, he's just an incredible, incredible, incredible historical figure. Brilliant and, and self-assured and, and f- apparently incredibly witty. Um, his, his back and forth with Cicero is impressive. I just, I, I, I think the man's fascinating and I can't wait to uh, dig into more of his life with you guys. So I hope you enjoyed that. Um, this week's book or major source was called, it's called uh, Masters of Command by Barry Strauss. And it's a great read. It takes on the lives of Alexander, Caesar, and Hannibal, and it tries to kind of figure out why they were so successful in parallel um, in parallel retellings. Um, it also kind of asks some interesting questions about the uh, the various qualities of of generals and why some are better at certain things than others. Uh, It's definitely worth checking out. I think you can get it on Amazon for like six bucks. Um, So definitely, if you can, that's uh, Masters of Command by Barry Strauss. Again, rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you are listening to this on. Please, please, please. It would really help. It helps make the show better. It helps kind of keep the engines, you know, you got to throw that coal into the engines or whatever it is, the vegetable oil if you're going green or whatever the hell it is that keeps the engines driving. Rating rating and reviewing will help do that because it will mean that we'll be heard by more people and therefore we will uh, we'll have a little bit more interest generated and the discussions will just grow forward from that. Again, check out the book club on Instagram. That's uh, Cauldron Podcast on Instagram. Just search it, and we'll we'll start digging into that soon. This book club, I want to be open to anything. Biography, history, historical fiction, maybe a little sci-fi with some history touches to it. Anything that we, uh, we as a group might find uh, engaging and something that might start a conversation. All right, that's enough of that. Up next, we take our first little dance with the Napoleonic Wars. We're going to travel to 1812 in the Spanish countryside, where the imposing fortress of Barajos must be taken, and there is only one man for the job, a certain Arthur Wellesley, the future Duke of Wellington. Thanks very much for listening. We'll talk to you next time. 